Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 23rd, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, because Melissa wouldn't dare let me forget, it's been nine years since we first met. And she dragged me south. That's okay. This is the podcast. This podcast is something that I promised a good friend, perhaps two or even three months ago, as we discussed the fact that the concept represented in the title was the subject of many discussions elsewhere, even in denominational churches. I apologize for being a couple of months late, perhaps just a couple of months. If you are a denominational Christian who happened upon this podcast because of the title, that is good, and we hope that you listen through to the end. But you should prepare now because you certainly shall be offended. However, we would assert that we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Off the record, I actually had some tech challenges yesterday, which I could not hold off they couldn't wait, and which pulled me away from my commentary on the first epistle of John. So since this discussion was overdue, I thought it was a better time than never. Also off the record, we are facing storms here in the Florida Panhandle. If I disappear, it's because our electricity went out, and I have generators, and I will be back as soon as they get hooked up, as soon as we could start them, because they're not automatic generators. I don't have Joel Osteen budgets for generators. There has been much speculation concerning the COVID vaccine and the mark of the beast, which is described in a revelation of Yahshua Christ. So here we shall present the COVID vaccine, fornication, and the mark of the beast, which is the title of this podcast. Here we are going to do a brief survey of the passages where the Mark of the Beast is mentioned and discuss them from our historical perspective of the revelation of Yahshua Christ. But first I must provide some background, briefly and loosely summarizing some of the things which I had presented here in my Revelation commentary. 10 years ago, which we are about to do over again, hopefully beginning before the end of this year. The first eight chapters of the Revelation mostly concern the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, with an interlude in chapter 7 for the sealing of the 144,000 and the innumerable multitude of other Israelites who would wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb. Then chapters 9 through 11 prophecy aspects of the history of the aftermath of the fall of Rome, namely the plague of Islam and the Reformation. Revelation chapter 12 is another interlude and it describes the origin and summarizes the motivations and activities of the enemies of Christ, 
Then, Revelation chapter 13 is a summary of the history of the seven times period of punishment of the children of Israel, which was facilitated through those same enemies of Christ. In my opinion, Revelation chapter 13 and the foregoing prophecies take us right up to the time of the end of the temporal power of the papacy and the beginning of a new age, the so-called Age of Liberty, guided by the Masonic ideals of the French Revolution, in which man supposes that he can make his own laws and rule over himself. This is the beginning of the prophecy time of Jacob's trouble. So we read in the final verses of Revelation chapter 13, which we believe is speaking of the power that the popes had asserted over the people of Christendom, and there had been given him to give a spirit to the image of the beast, in order that the image of the beast may also speak and may make it that as many as would not worship the beast the image of the beast should be slain. And it makes all, those who are small and those who are great, and those who are wealthy and those who are poor, and those who are free and those who are slaves, that they have given to them an engraved mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead. And in order that one would not be able to buy or to sell if he has not the mark the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Thus is wisdom. He having a mind must calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. In our commentary on that chapter, we establish the historical and other evidence to support the assertion that this second beast of Revelation chapter 13 is the papacy. And the presented, we presented the evidence that the popes did indeed enjoy such power. The office of pope was established by the Emperor Justinian, circa 530 AD, who had given the Bishop of Rome temporal authority over all other Christian bishops in his laws. Based on that authority, later popes asserted authority over the kings themselves, and even placed kings under the interdict so that kings could not buy or sell unless they bent the knee to the Pope. As a, as a digression, once we understand that the plague of locusts in Revelation chapter 9 represents the rise of Arabic Islam and that the unbinding of the Euphrates allowed the Asiatic hordes of Asia, which were also Islamic, the Turkic hordes of Asia, to invade and destroy what was left of the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire. Once we understand that, we see that the Byzantines had suffered such a fate on account of idolatry where we read at the end of that chapter, and the rest of the men who had not been killed by these plagues did not even repent from the works of their hands, 
that they do not worship demons and idols. Things of gold and things of silver and things of copper and things of stone and things of wood. Things which are able neither to see nor to hear nor to walk. And they did not repent from their murders, nor from their drugs, nor from their fornication, nor from thefts. That word for drugs is pharmakia. It is the same word from which we get our English words pharmacy and pharmaceutical today. And we chose to represent the meaning of the word in that manner because that was the most common use of the word in ancient Greek. We actually have an entire paper on this subject, a paper which is probably over 10 years old, at Christogenia titled Christianity and Pharmaceuticals. The word has other connotations relating to sorcery, but to the ancients, the use of drugs was certainly one of them. The men and, and it was the primary one of them. The men of Byzantium were punished for their idolatry and their sorcery, as well as for fornication and other sins. So moving forward, while the temporal power of the papacy, as well as much of the power of the kings of Europe, was diminished in the Age of Liberty, I should say the so-called Age of Liberty, which was ushered in with the French Revolution, wherein democratic forms of government have been introduced throughout Christendom. In Revelation chapter 14, we see announcements which relate to those circumstances. The opening of the little book represents the placing of the Bible in Revelation chapter 11, represents the placing of the Bible, the word of God, into the hands of the people. And democracy gave men the power to take it up or to ignore it. You'll have to excuse me, I wrote this rather hastily this afternoon. So we read in Revelation chapter 14. And I saw another messenger flying in midair, having an eternal good message to announce before those sitting upon the earth, and before every nation and tribe and tongue and people, saying with a great voice, You must fear Yahweh, and you must give honor to him, because the hour of his judgment has come. You must worship he who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. Then next, we see an announcement of the inevitable fall of Babylon. Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And another second messenger followed, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. She who has made all the nations drink from the wine of the passion of her fornication. Catholics, Roman Catholics, for so many centuries being told what to worship, how to worship, hardly ever reading their Bibles, hardly ever hearing anything from their Bibles. The opening of the little book in the Reformation described in Revelation chapter 11 paved the way. It set the stage for these events 
and the ability of the people to actually know and fear God through the scripture, which we see here in Revelation chapter 14 in the warning that you must fear Yahweh and you must give honor to him because the hour of his judgment has come. If we don't have the word of God, we will never properly learn why and how we should have awe and respect or fear for God. So we see this inevitable, this announcement of this inevitable fall of Babylon in Revelation chapter 14. Perhaps Babylon may have fallen if sufficient men had taken up their Bibles. But then there would have been no time of Jacob's trouble. And Yahweh foresees all things without leaving any hypotheticals unsolved, whereby men by themselves can change the course of history. The course of history may change upon certain events or actions of men, but Yahweh God foresees that as well. So the announcement assures the fall of Babylon, even if it was not immediate. The next verses demonstrate the truth of that assertion, that it wouldn't be immediate. And another, third messenger followed them, saying with a great voice, If one worships the beast and its image, and receives an engraved mark upon his forehead or upon his hand, then he shall drink from the wine of the wrath of Yahweh, which is poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented in the fire and sulfur before the holy messengers, or angels, if you will, and before the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for eternal ages. And they who worship the beast and its image, and one who receives the engraved mark of its name, shall not have rest day and night. Thus is the patience of the saints, they keeping the commandments of Yahweh and the faith of Yahshua. Under the temporal power of the papacy, men had little choice but to bend the knee to the Pope, as the only alternative was death. Notice the text of Revelation chapter 13 in relation to the mark, and it says that it, the beast, makes all that they have given to them an engraved mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead. But here in chapter 14 we read, if one worships the beast and its image, as if the choice does indeed belong to man. This is why I believe that in modern times the choice is voluntary, to worship the beast and take the mark, even if for some of us, perhaps once again the only alternative may be death. Of course, Yahweh also knows which men will make that choice, but at the moment a man does. Only he is responsible for his actions, and he cannot blame God for his sins. While there are other interludes, we believe that Revelation chapters 14 through 17 describe what has happened in more recent history, up to the point where we are today, awaiting the actual fall of Mystery Babylon the Great. So in chapters 15 and 16, we see further references to the mark, the mark of the beast. In Revelation chapter 15 from verse 2, And I saw like glass, sea mixed with fire, and those prevailing from the beast and from his image, and from the number of his name. 
standing upon the glass sea holding leers from Yahweh. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Your works are great and wonderful, Prince Yahweh Almighty. Your ways are righteous and true, King of the nations, who should not be afraid, Prince, and honor your name, or Lord, if you will, because you are the only Holy One, because all the nations shall come and they shall worship before you. Because your judgments have been made manifest. So here we see that the purpose of the Old and New Testaments are one and the same. And those who overcome the beast know that because they sing the song of Moses. That song is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Yahweh commanded Moses to write that song before his death. The song sings of the judgment which Yahweh shall execute upon all of his enemies and upon all those who have brought or caused harm to the children of Israel. So those who sing the song know who Israel truly is. That is the judgment which shall be manifest in Yahshua Christ as his purpose was executed by Moses, and as Moses had in turn written of him. Those who sing that song are those who prevail over the beast and his image. In Revelation chapter 16, we see the seven bowls representing seven plagues, and we believe these are symbolic of certain circumstances and phenomena in our modern world. These are the days which were prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith Yahweh. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. The very first plague affects those who have this mark of the beast. In Revelation chapter 16 verse 2. And the first went out and poured his bowl out into the earth. And there came a bad and grievous sore upon the men who had the engraved mark of the beast and who worship its image. These men were not given the mark, but rather they had it already. Then in Revelation 19, chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was taken. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And here it is evident that those who accept the mark of the beast are not necessarily cast into the lake of fire, but those who have deceived them into accepting it do face that fate. 
In spite of the dismal image for the future of those who accept the mark of the beast, which is drawn in Revelation chapter 14, we do not believe they will lose their eternal life. We do not believe that their immortal Adamic spirits will be destroyed. Rather, they shall be punished, and the memory of their punishment, the smoke of their torment, abides forever. We see this as another description of what we also read in Daniel chapter 12, that many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. While we believe that Revelation chapter 20 is an interlude describing an aspect of past history, since the reference to resurrection is actually an interpolation, we nevertheless see a description of the fate of those who do not have the mark of the beast, which may also in itself be prophetic of the future. In verse 4 of Revelation chapter 20, And I saw thrones. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And I would apologize ahead of time for, perhaps, for translating or for employing translations from the Christogenian New Testament alternatively with the King James Version. But I sought to use the Christogenian New Testament where I thought that the clarity was much better. So with all of this, we see that there are different ways which indicate that one has taken the mark of the beast. One way certainly is the submission to receive a COVID vaccination. That is pharmakia. That is the pharmakia, the same as the pharmakia that the rest of the men who were not punished by these plagues did not repent of in Revelation chapter 9. But then, on the other hand, the receiving of any vaccination is that same sin. While a child cannot help what his parents had compelled him to do as a child, as that is a sin of the parents, as an adult, if a man submits to receiving one vaccine or another, then one vaccine is not a sin any more than the other. They are all the same sort of sorcery. But if one more easily suffers from some plague, that is a punishment from God if one suffers from some disease as a result. Even the voluntary wearing of a mask in public is at least an indication that one may readily accept the mark of the beast, since in their open fear of a virus, they are worshipping the beast rather than displaying any faith in God. Even in the midst of the plagues of Egypt, the children of Israel were never said to have worn any face masks. <laughs> Not at all. Even with the plague of frogs and the plague of life, 
lice, or any of the other plagues. But another way which indicates one has accepted the mark of the beast is by accepting or committing, or I should say is by committing or even merely accepting race-mixing fornication. This is evident that fornication is one of the sins committed by those having the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. But we shall read through verse 12, and we've already read this in part, but for this purpose we shall do it again. From Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And another second messenger followed, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. She who has made all the nations drink from the wine of the passion of her fornication. And another third messenger followed them, saying with a great voice, If one worships the beast and its image, and receives an engraved mark upon his forehead or upon his hand, then he shall drink from the wine of the wrath of Yahweh, in response to having drunk from the wine of the passion of the fornication which the beast promotes in society all throughout history. And we will get to that shortly. Then he shall drink from the wine of the wrath of Yahweh, which is poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented in fire and sulfur before the holy messengers and before the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for eternal ages. And they who worship the beast and its image, and one who receives the engraved mark of its name, shall not have rest day and night. Thus is the patience of the saints, they keeping the commandments of Yahweh and the faith of Yahshua. So there we see fornication and the worship of the beast and the bearing of the mark of the beast are directly connected in Revelation chapters, chapter 14, verses 8 and through 10, or verses 8 and 9, I'm sorry. The concept of universalism. Promoted by the Roman Catholic Church is no different than the concept of the Age of Liberty found in the slogan of the French Revolution and perpetuated throughout Christendom by the Masonic Lodges of Jewry, which proclaim, and they are the Masonic Lodges of Jewry because their doctrines were created by Jews. And they've been under the control of Jews ever since the French Revolution. Those lodges which proclaim liberty, equality, fraternity. And that concept of the so-called universal brotherhood of man was promoted by world Jewry and its agencies, such as Freemasonry. That is indeed the fornication of which the scriptures speak. The popes had come to represent the system of the time. Even if Jews had to feign conversion in the Middle Ages in order to infiltrate and corrupt the church. Now the system is controlled by the Jews themselves. 
through the banks and other international corporations which promote these same things. So in every age, there have been men who worship the system, the beast which receives its power from the dragon, and who, by doing so, ignore the word of God. Sorcery, or pharmaceuticals, is a sin associated with the mark of the beast, but so are idolatry, fornication, and other sins. Today, some men and women are trapped in sorcery, in part because the knowledge of natural and godly remedies for their ailments is suppressed. But a man may often make himself dependent upon sorcery, while another is dependent upon idolatry, and another on fornication. When a man enters into a state-enforced marriage contract with the beast, he makes himself dependent upon fornication, and he can never hear the truth, so long as he is dependent upon that sin. While we may not be able to visibly see the mark of the beast, the fact that all three sorts of men bear the mark is made evident by those choices which they have made for themselves. So the mark of the beast itself may never be evident. It may represent something which can't really be seen by men. But the fact that they're engaged in those sins, the fact that they are accepting of vaccines or even promote vaccines, the fact that they're caught up in race-mixed relationships and have race-mixed children. For that time, there is such a thing as repentance. But for that time, yes, they are worshiping the beast and they are bearing the mark of the beast. It may not be displayed literally on their foreheads, but when you're walking around with some woman of another race on your right hand, there you have it. Or some little niglet hanging from your hip. It is evident that the mark of the beast is also related to the mark of Cain, as it is his descendants who represent that dragon which gives its power to the beast. Even the mark of Cain was not necessarily a visible mark. So, we do not think that the COVID vaccine by itself is the mark of the beast. But it is evident that one who has taken it has already received the mark of the beast because they worship the system. They're engaged in the idolatry of the world. Neither do we think that the commission of fornication by itself is the mark of the beast. However, one who commits such miscegenation reveals that he has accepted the mark of the beast by that very act. And thereby, his children, or hers, shall indeed be literal beasts. So either of these things, and others, are manifestations of the mark of the beast because they are outward signs that one has accepted what the mark is said to represent. We should cross-reference those verses from Revelation chapter 14 with Revelation chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. 
and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. When Babylon falls, when it does fall, things should be a lot worse than they are today from the perspective of the world. They should be a lot better from the perspective of the Christian. The fact that the two announcements of the fall of Mystery Babylon bracket the seven plagues and other things described in Revelation chapters 14 through 17 also helps to establish that all of these things are associated and that they all describe our modern circumstances and that all of the sins mentioned therein are witnesses that those who willingly partake in them have also voluntarily accepted the mark of the beast. Even if one does not sin in like manner, by accepting those who do, one is just as guilty as the perpetrators. Romans chapter 1 verse 32. So going along to get along, rather than being obedient to Christ, is also an acceptance of the mark of the beast and those who bear the mark. When you accept sinners, you are just as guilty of their sins. When you accept a sodomite and you keep company with a sodomite, you are just as guilty of sodomy as the sodomite is. As Paul said in reference to those who commit certain sins in Romans chapter 1, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only those who do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And I should have quoted the Christogenia New Testament there, and I didn't, so I paraphrased the King James Version because it was more convenient <laughs> Today, if one refuses a vaccination, or if one rejects beasts and refuses to accept race mixing or sodomy, one may indeed become an outcast. But that is the fate which we all may suffer in one way or another on behalf of Christ. Today we await the fall of Babylon. We know that with confidence. Because all of the circumstances described as Mystery Babylon the Great are fully manifest in the world today. The kingdom of the people of God has been handed over to the beast, as it says in Revelation chapter 17. The Jewish-controlled international banks and corporations operate the global system of commerce associated with Mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, and all governments in this world are subject to it. Without exception, it's not governments that are running the world today, not in the last hundred years. It's the banks and corporations. As soon as you hear buzzwords such as diversity or multiculturalism, and the government is promoting those buzzwords in society at the same 
time and tempo as the international banks and corporations, as the television media displays in advertising, and the government makes policies enforcing the, the, these agendas of these corporations, then you should know that the corporations are running your government. And if you haven't figured that out, you're blind. Aliens today have flooded the nations of Christendom at the beckoning of those same international banks and corporations. And we see that once again, the remnant of the race of Adam is in the condition which Christ prophesied, where he said, as it is recorded in Luke, even though it's also in the other two Gospels, in the other two synoptic Gospels, I'm sorry, I can count, but this is not in John, where he said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 17, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. All those who engage in these things are worshipping the beast. These and many other circumstances inform us of this time in which we are in. But how Babylon will fall, or when it will fall, are not for us to know, even when we can perceive that the fall should happen any day now. So now, because we have spoken of fornication here in relation to the mark of the beast, we shall continue our discussion with a review of a paper written by Clifton Emmerheiser, which is titled, What Scripture Teaches About the Unclean? Clifton really tried to cover all of the angles in this paper, going the lengths to describe who are clean and who are unclean in relation to the Bride of the Lamb, which is the collective children of Israel. This was apparently written in January 2008. Here we shall offer our own comments as we present his paper. What Scripture Teaches About the Unclean by Clifton Emmerheiser. So he begins. The subject of what is clean or unclean is of the utmost importance in Scripture and cannot be overemphasized. Many times when the subject of the clean and unclean is brought to the fore, the full meaning is not comprehended by the reader. But I must add, that the meaning was not even understood by the translators. In the New Testament, where the word unclean appears, it is usually from one of two words, and these words are not the same. The first is akathartus, which does literally mean unclean. That's exactly what it means. And that is how it should be translated, generally. Akathartus is properly translated in the King James Version. But the second word is coinus, which does not mean unclean. In fact, coinus is the word which gives us coin Greek. And coin Greek does not mean unclean Greek. It means common Greek. Coinus means common referring to something which is not sanctified, but which is rather shared in common, 
Sometimes such things are also described in the scripture as bebelos, which is an adjective meaning trodden, as in the ground, which is common, something that is trodden upon. In the law, there are things which are deemed unclean, such as swine, which can never be sanctified or set apart and dedicated to God on any altar. Yet there are things which are common, such as cattle, or a man who has been defiled ceremonially for some reason, which may be cleansed and sanctified on an altar. In their translations of coinus, the King James Version translators often failed to distinguish between the two words, thereby proving that they did not properly understand them. One crucial place where they did this is in Romans chapter 14, where it reads Paul as having said in the King James Version, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. This creates a lie, as Yahweh never cleansed swine or shellfish or anything that the law prohibits men from eating. When the apostles wrote, they did not consider those things to be food, because they weren't commonly eaten. Rather, the teachings of Christ in this manner had to do with the Levitical ceremonies and the scribes and Pharisees who added to them with their legalistic demands that men wash even from the hands up to the elbows before they could be permitted to eat. And they had all kinds of other crazy laws, which were not found in Scripture, governing the washings of pots and pans and things like that, which Christ mentions in Mark chapter 7 and belittles them for in Mark chapter 7. The Christogenian New Testament translates that same passage from Romans to read. And I know and have confidence by Prince Joshua that nothing is of itself profane except to he who considers anything to be profane. To him it is profane. In other words, if you don't think some food, not swine, swine is not food. If you don't think some food should be eaten because perhaps it was sacrificed at a pagan temple, if you think it's profane and don't want to eat it, then that's fine. It's not really profane because it's something God created to be eaten. But if you don't think it should be eaten, Paul's basically saying that you can consider it profane, but it's really only profane to you. Paul was not advocating the eating of swine. Rather, he was discussing the eating of foods which had come from pagan temples, which would therefore have been considered common. And we translate the word as profane there, which is a synonym when it describes sanctification, when it is used in relation to sanctification, would, would be a better way to phrase that. With that distinction having been explained, we shall continue with Clifton.
Most well-intending but misinformed Christians point to Acts chapter 10, verses 10 through 16 to support their insistence upon the consumption of unclean foods such as swine, where Peter had a vision which says, And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Master, for I have never eaten, and this helps to prove, that over three years after the resurrection, Peter still kept the food laws. He still kept the biblical food laws. Not so, Master, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke unto him again the second time. What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now, if this relates to things eaten, if that's the truth of this message which Yahweh God had given to Peter, then I would ask why we have laws or we have commandments in the New Testament forbidding pharmakia. Why do we have laws forbidding pharmakia if we could eat anything? Because back in those days, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, they did not have hypodermic needles. They did not inject substances into their veins. They did not have that technology. They took their pharmakia and they swallowed it. So if Christians really believe that they should eat anything or that they could eat anything at all, then why are there laws, commandments in the New Testament and warnings against pharmakia or sorcery? Because the ancient Greeks and Romans swallowed their drugs. So if God thinks, or, or if God told us we could eat anything, then we shouldn't have those commandments in the New Testament. So there is a definite discrepancy there. However, if we think we can eat anything, then taking a vaccine is fine. Because basically, taking a vaccine is eating something even if you're ingesting it through your veins, through a hypodermic needle. And in those vaccines are all sorts of unclean and abominable things. Things like, I like to refer to it as minced monkey guts, because they actually use the kidneys or livers of monkeys in order to cultivate the vaccine that they're creating in order to cultivate the bacteria. 
There are also products from aborted babies, human babies, in those vaccines. And when you take a vaccine, you are eating those things. Would you swallow them? So you think it's okay to put them into your blood as a Christian? Really? And they cultivate bacteria to create vaccines, not only in minced monkey guts, but also in the flesh of aborted fetuses. Clifton now comments on that passage from from Acts chapter 10. Excuse me. Three times makes this very important. You will notice here it says, a great sheet knit at the four corners. Any truly alert Bible student will recognize that the four corners spoken of here represent Israel as they camped in the wilderness in the formation of a square. That's Clifton's opinion. I won't refute it, but... I wouldn't have said it. There's other ways to prove that this is speaking of the children of Israel, but that's fine. That's the way Clifton sees things. Some some people do better understand things symbolically. It's not unclean animals in the sheet, but unclean Israelites who were divorced from the covenant. And that part is certainly true. This vision represents, the animals in this vision represent people, and the result of Peter's seeing this vision was that he understood to accept two, or perhaps it was three, but I think it was two, while he was at the home of Simon the Tanner, two men from the household of Cornelius, men who were not circumcised, men whom Peter would not normally consort with, and that's evident in many other places in Scripture. The reference to unclean heathen, which Clifton made here, is to people who are common or coinous, which is people who are not sanctified. The word for holy, whether it be kodesh in Hebrew or hagios in Greek, means sanctified, as in separated for the purposes of God. And the children of Israel were commanded to be such a holy or separate nation. For example, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 6. But in the time, from the time of the deportations, when they were no longer circumcised, they were no longer keeping the law until they were reconciled to Yahweh in Christ, in the gospel of Christ, they were considered common even if they were meant to be holy. So continuing with Clifton's comments, then Christ, whom most people call Jesus, but who was Yahweh in the flesh as Yahshua, came to redeem Israel back to himself. Israel, once divorced by Old Testament law, could not be remarried to Yahweh again, except by one provision, and that being that either Israel or Yahweh must die. This was the whole purpose of the crucifixion. For upon Yahshua dying, the way was clear for him to once again marry Israel as he had done before, as he promised in Hosea chapter 2. This Paul had also explained in the opening verses of Romans chapter 7, 
in the terms of a wife bound by the law until the death of her husband, whereby she is freed. Yahweh dying had fulfilled the law, and because he is eternal, he is able to reconcile Israel to himself in Christ, thereby fulfilling the prophets. So in that manner did Christ fulfill both the law and the prophets. It can't be just one or the other. But the law itself prevented reconciliation, as it forbid a man from taking back an adulterous wife or a wife whom he had divorced and who had then been with another man. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which Clifton will cite below. So here he next says, in reference to the passage from Acts chapter 10, Therefore it says further, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. This is where Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 comes into play. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Because, through his act of dying as a man, Yahweh God was able to reconcile himself to the children of Israel while not violating the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Because when he died, Israel was freed from the law, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. If you don't understand these things, you are only playing at Christianity. You are not a true Christian. This is a whole Bible belief that is without contradiction once you understand the entire scripture. Clifton continues in reference to the passage at Acts chapter 10. What one must understand is that Yahweh found Israel as a virgin and married her, all 12 tribes, and later he found uncleanness in her through her unfaithfulness and turning to idolatry and the gross immorality to which idolatry ultimately leads, such as race mixing or homosexuality as was practiced in Sodom. That Israel was a virgin in a religious and national sense is clear in the narrative of Genesis, as the sons of Jacob had worshipped the God of Abraham and not the idols of the world before they went down to Egypt. That Yahweh had cleansed a divorced Israel on the cross of Christ is evident in the many promises that he would cleanse Israel of their sins. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 33, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, speaking only to the children of Israel, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. So we read in a prophecy of Christ, found in Isaiah chapter 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions, only valid, only pertinent to the children of Israel. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Then we read 
and Paul said that where sin is not imputed, there is no law. So sin was only imputed to the children of Israel, and therefore only the children of Israel needed Yahweh to die for their sin. Then we read in Micah chapter 7, a promise which is worded very similarly to what is professed in Luke chapter 1, that, that Christ had come to fulfill. If we read the words of Mary and the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1. And it says in Micah chapter 7, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou will perform the truth to Jacob, Mary's exact words, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. The children of Israel were the only people for whom Yahweh had sanctified and cleansed their sins. Now, once again, continuing with Clifton, as we have gotten ahead of him. So Yahweh handed Israel a bill of divorce, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, and I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And Judah was also divorced, and that's explained at length in the words of the prophet Ezekiel. I did not pull them out to cite them for this presentation. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us is found at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4. And it's the law of divorce. If a man, and Clifton only cited a very short portion of this. He only cited one verse and not quite in its entirety. If a man puts away his wife, writes her a bill of divorcement, and she goes and marries another man, once she marries another man, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. At Luke chapter 16, verse 18, Yahshua Christ himself declared, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. So Israel committed adultery. Yahweh God never committed adultery. And it would be blasphemy to accuse him of that. So Clifton says, it should be glaringly apparent that once Yahweh had divorced Israel, he could not take her back as his wife again without breaking his own law on the matter. Nor could he marry another. Those such as the clergy calls Gentiles, which is, of course, an entirely false religion. Nor could he, nor could he have a son whom many call Jesus, and allow him to marry his father's wife without breaking his own law, as so many insist. In other words, Yahshua Christ is not a separate person in the Son. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God come as one of his own sons. He is God. And that's a 
significantly conceptual difference from the frauds and charlatans who have devised and supported the Trinity doctrine within the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. It is true that the denominational churches, and especially the Roman Catholic and so-called Orthodox churches, accuse Christ, God himself, of being both an adulterer and a fornicator with their wayward universalist teachings and so-called replacement theology, imagining that somebody else could masquerade as Israel because they belong to some organization of man. Clifton continues explaining how Yahweh transcended his law, while at the same time having kept it, which is also what Paul explained in Romans chapter 7. So Clifton says, The only other provision is if one of the two parties of the marriage were to die. If Israel were to die, she had no power of resurrection, and she would be dead forever. And that is why, in relation to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah chapter 31, it is said that Israel shall always be a nation before God. Not a church, a nation. A nation is a homogenous ethnicity, a homogenous ethnic group of people. Not a church, a stinking church made up of diverse races of people. Continuing with Clifton. So Yahweh took it on himself to come in the flesh as a man and die in order to satisfy his own law. And having the power of resurrection, can and will remarry Israel. The wedding supper of the Lamb is when that remarriage actually happens. And at the end, there's a city which is intended only for the people of the 12 tribes of Israel. Clifton now makes sense of what he had said here by citing the words of Christ from the Gospel of John. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And that's how Christ can marry his father's wife as the son because God the Father and God the Son are both Yahweh God. One is the invisible God and the other is the manifestation of God in the flesh. They're the same. And they could be the same at the same time. And for the benefit of man, they could even have conversations with each other at the same time, even though they're the same God, and they're one person and not three. Because God is able to do that, and we shouldn't prohibit God with the restrictions which men suffer. Clifton then says, the important thing for the reader to understand is this. Upon Yahweh's divorce of Israel for her unfaithfulness, she fell into an unclean category. In the prophecy of the two sticks, Israel and Judah, which Yahweh promised to make into one, which is found in Ezekiel chapter 37, we read, Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. 
But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is what God cleansed. Now returning to Clifton. Getting back to Peter's sheet vision. Yahshua said, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. And the word common means unclean. And here Clifton himself failed to distinguish the proper meaning of the term coyness. When the children of Israel worshipped the gods of Canaan, and when they were finally divorced by Yahweh, they became coyness or common. And we can call them unclean in a ceremonial sense, but they were not unclean or acathartous in the sense of the things in the law which could not ever be sanctified. So there are unclean things that are acathartous, and those things can never be sanctified on an altar. But there are unclean things which are coyness, and those things can be clean. They can be made clean by sanctifying them. While acathartis can describe either type of uncleanness, coyness only refers to what is common, but which can be cleansed according to the law. So, coyness does not mean unclean, and it should never be translated as unclean. It's simply what is common, but things that are common can be cleansed. Things that are unclean according to the law, which is described by that word acathartis, can never be cleansed, although acathartis can be used in relation to things which are unclean because they are common. So we should notice a deeper distinction in this dialogue between Peter and God in Acts chapter 10. Notice that Peter said, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And he used both terms, coyness and acathartis. When Yahweh responded, he did not mention anything which was acathartis. And therefore, he never professed to have cleansed anything which was unclean, except which was unclean and that could not be cleansed according to the law. Rather, Yahweh responded using only the word coyness for common. And he said, even as it is translated in the King James Version, what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. So Peter said, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And Yahweh only referred to what was common. What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. He didn't refer to what Peter thought as being unclean. So, he didn't clean pigs. This is an important distinction since it helps to prove that Yahweh did not clean anything which he had not promised to clean. He did not clean swine, nor other races of men. He only promised to clean the children of Israel. We can't assume that he cleaned anything other than what he promised to clean. Now we shall continue with Clifton.
Therefore, the message of the gospel is that by Christ's shed blood upon the cross, Israel was cleansed. You will notice that it is written in the past tense, referring to the phrase, what God has cleansed. It is written in the past tense, in Greek also, so it happened 2,000 years ago, and people since that event have no choice in the matter. And we, as Israel, have been clean ever since. The only choice we have is to accept that cleansing and be thankful for it. As Christ told his apostles, you are now clean according to the word which I have spoken to you. The word of the gospel cleanses the children of Israel when they accept that cleansing. Furthermore, Yahweh married Israel only, and by his law can only take Israel back. If he were to marry members of any other race, it would be adultery, and Yahweh himself would become unclean. If he were to do that, as so many claim he will, he might as well have kept Israel in her adulterous condition. In other words, it wouldn't matter. The law wouldn't matter. None of it would matter. He wouldn't have had to die because none of it would matter. Do they mean to tell us that Yahweh is going to marry unclean sewer people? Universalism is Satan's agenda, not Yahweh's. The sewer races will not inherit the kingdom. And if you don't believe that they are sewer races, you should investigate all those pictures of Hindus smearing dung all over their bodies because they think that will cure the coronavirus. Incredible. Yahweh would become unclean, having joined himself to the unclean, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, and again in a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, where he cites a prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 52. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Then, having raised the members of Christ, shall I make members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he joining himself to the harlot is one body? They shall be, he declares, two into one flesh. But he joining himself to the prince is one spirit. So if Christ accepted races other than Israel, he himself would be doing what the children of Israel were forbidden to do and what they were punished for doing. The proof of our interpretation is ascertained in the very next verse here, where Paul wrote in verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Flee fornication. Every error which perhaps a man may make is outside of the body. But he committing fornication, for his own body he fails. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from Yahweh, and you are not your own? Indeed, you have been purchased for a price, proving that Paul was speaking to the children of Israel, as Yahweh had promised to purchase Israel back from her sin. So then you honor Yahweh in your body. Only the children of Israel were bought, redeemed with the blood of Christ. Paul used the same word for fornication just a few paragraphs later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
to refer to an episode of race mixing from the Old Testament, from the Book of Numbers, chapter 25. Now, returning to Clifton. It should be pointed out, though, as long as Israel had divorce status from Yahweh, she also was considered unclean. Not that she was genetically impure in any sense of the matter. Many confused the language at Isaiah chapter 56 because of this, and assumed that Isaiah was opening the door of Israel's covenant to everyone. But that simply isn't true. And of course it can't be true, because Jeremiah the prophet wrote the words in Jeremiah chapter 31 about 120 years after Isaiah wrote the words of Isaiah chapter 56. So Isaiah can't be nullifying or changing what Jeremiah wrote 120 years later. But that's the stupidity of denominational church doctrines. Clifton goes on by saying, they will quote Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 3, 5, 6, 7, and 8. I don't know why Clifton put 5 there, because he skips it. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to Yahweh speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now, if the children of Israel were to be a peculiar people and a separated or holy nation in the first place, then only Israelites can cry that Yahweh separated me from his people because nobody else belonged there. Clifton now skips to verse 6, not to verse 5. Also, the sons of the stranger, and that's a mistranslation, that join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Yahweh God. I won't say Yahweh, singular Elohim, as Clifton was wont to write, for other unrelated purposes, because some fools claim that Elohim is always plural, just because it's a plural form. It's actually a plural form with a singular use. Yahweh God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Clifton now comments and says, Typical universalist view, Clifton wrote in a very concise manner because he was trying to squeeze all of his essays into a single sheet of paper. <clears throat> Typically, 2,500 words on a single, on two sides of a single 8.5 by 14 inch piece of paper in four columns per side. So, Clifton sometimes his writing is difficult to read because as I read it, I should add the correct articles and particles and prepositions and things like that that Clifton left out just to save space. 
The typical universalist view on this passage can be found in the Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald, page 982. Neither the foreigner nor the eunuch should fear that they will be barred from any of the benefits of Christ's kingdom. In fact, those who obey the word of the Lord will have preferred positions. The temple will then be a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israel. God will gather Gentiles to his fold in addition to the house of Israel. And Clifton responds to this by exclaiming, but I say there is nothing further from the truth. And of course, MacDonald's comment is ludicrous because it ignores the context of the chapter as well as the entire context of the surrounding chapters of Isaiah. That Yahweh God gathers the outcasts of Israel proves that the eunuch and the dry tree, for examples, are outcast Israelites, and only Israelites would have known to keep the Sabbath in the first place, as the concept of the Sabbath was alien to all other nations where Israel was sent into captivity. If Yahweh was meaning to describe people of other races, in Isaiah chapter 56 verses 3 through 8, why would he even describe them with terms such as eunuch and dry tree? Rather, where it says son of the stranger, a better translation in the context of Isaiah would be son of the estranged, as an outcast would be estranged. An estranged man may say, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. But someone who had no place to begin with would have no such expectation. This fully reflects the stupidity of denominational church doctrines. So continuing with Clifton's response to MacDonald's folly. Once we grasp that the ten northern tribes had been divorced by the Almighty, along with most of Judah, and that would include Benjamin, we can understand that they were cut off from the covenant and became estranged to him. The tribes, being cut off from the covenant, became like a eunuch or a dry tree. Another simile about a eunuch is that he cannot procreate children to carry on his name, so too Israel being divorced lost her name. For that period, Israel's seed had been cut off. So figuratively, the simile of a eunuch is appropriate. Upon understanding that Israel was the eunuch, there is no longer a conflict with Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, which forbids a eunuch from entering the congregation of the Lord. This passage is not talking about bringing non-Israelites under the covenant, but quite the opposite. Once Yahshua died for our redemption, we were then brought back under the new covenant, which includes only the house of Israel and the house of Judah, citing Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, and, Jer and Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. And to try to force whosoever into the equation is a matter of fraud. Unclean, sore people under the covenant? You have to be kidding.
Clifton's ex Clifton's exclamations, not mine. Then we must also understand the use of the word stranger. Some may argue that the word stranger at Isaiah 56, 3 and 6 is Mekar, Strong's number 5236, instead of Gare, Strong's number 1616. We have recently demonstrated in a review of another paper written by Clifton, which I had titled Clifton Emmerheiser on Ted Wyland, and presented here in January of 2020, that the words Nakar and Nakri do not denote people of other races, even though traditionally identity Christians held that opinion. Rather, they only denote people who are unknown or unfamiliar to the beholder without any racial connotation. A gare stranger is a guest friend, someone with an expectation of hospitality or treaty ensuring them such an expectation. But a Nekar or a Nakri are simply people who are not familiar or known to the beholder. That's all they are. And in that other presentation, we presented more than two or three witnesses that they bear that meaning. Returning to Clifton once again, when Israel was divorced, they became equivalent to non-Israelites until Yahshua purchased them back. So, Nekar is not out of order in this passage. At Isaiah chapter 56, verse 2, man appears twice. I'm sort of amending Clifton's language. Number 582, the word Enosh, and number 120, the word Adam. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown's commentary on this passage, which Clifton says is on page 582, but I'm not so sure that wasn't an error. I would have to check. Jameson Fawcett and Brown's commentary on this passage describes Enosh thus. The man, Hebrew, Enosh, a man in humble life, in contradistinction to the Hebrew Ish, one of high rank, in this sense, the meaning of Enosh is very fitting, for Israel was humbled when she was punished, but they didn't become genetic sore people like bad fig Jews, Arabs, Mexicans, or any other non-white race. And I should interject, although I didn't write it into my notes, that in my opinion, the Hebrew word ish <coughs> is a term of respect for a man where the Hebrew word Enosh refers to a man as a mortal, a mortal man, any man, any mortal male hominid. But the word Adam is a racial term referring to a particular race of man, Adam and his descendants. Not all races are of Adam. The Rephaim weren't of Adam, the Nephilim weren't of Adam, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Girgashites were not of Adam, the 
Zuzims, or roving creatures of Genesis chapter 14, were not of Adam, and whoever Cain married and built a city for were not of Adam. It should also be evident, returning to Clifton, that when it speaks of others at Isaiah 56, 8, it does not mean non-Israelites. It should be noticed that others is italicized here. Although the remainder of the verse does support its use. Just whom are the others? Sometimes it would help if one were familiar with the history surrounding it, when the passage was written. Isaiah wrote this when Manasseh was king of Judah, who reigned from 696 to 641 B.C. And let me say that Isaiah lived and continued to write for at least several years after the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib, which is commonly dated to 701 B.C. Some people pronounce Sennacherib as Sennacherib. At that time, Clifton says, the ten-tribe northern house of Israel were already captive in Assyria, and again, along with much of Judah, and the southern kingdom of Judah, or really the remnant in Jerusalem, was a tribute-paying province to the Assyrians. During Manasseh's reign, he tolerated the high places, and Judah's Mars dipped to an all-time low, even beyond that which the northern ten tribes had committed leading to a certain amount of race mixing with the Canaanites, thus producing half-breed, unclean sewer children. So the others, at verse 8, can only be pure-blooded members of the ten northern tribes. This whole passage at Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8, can only be speaking of the restoration of the ten northern tribes. At the time of Isaiah, back into the kingdom after their christ blood-washed cleansing under the ministry of Paul, which Peter saw in his four-cornered sheet vision. Yahweh, in the flesh, didn't die for pigs, but rather for Israelites. It is blasphemous to even suggest that Christ died for pigs. Nevertheless, pig is unclean and unfit for consumption by white men but permissible for the other races, because they also are pigs. We would interpret the others of Isaiah 56 eight to refer to the many Israelites who had left Palestine and settled in Europe over the centuries prior to the Assyrian captivity, as Isaiah is primarily addressing those of the Assyrian captivity in that chapter which is something which is established in the preceding chapters, chapters that MacDonald ignored in his own assessment of the passage. Returning to Clifton, adultery happens within a woman's body with the introduction of an alien element. This is one form of adultery, is race-mixing. In metallurgy, the word alloy means to reduce the purity of by mixing with a less valuable material, a less valuable metal, and then an impairing alien 
element, meaning an alien element that impairs something, degrades it. Clifton cites the definition of impairing, which means cause to diminish in quality, power, or value, make worse. Is this not exactly what happens when an alien sperm fertilizes the egg of a pure white female? Such an introduction is a sin for which there can be no forgiveness, for the end product can never be corrected. Once such a conception of a sperm cell and an egg takes place, every succeeding cell formed, forming the baby has the blueprint of that alien element which is unclean. Under such a scenario, every single cell is polluted, Therefore, nothing short of complete annihilation by the angels of Christ, described at Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50, can remedy such a sin. If the conception is unclean, so too the entire formation of the final product, as well as all generations downstream forever, and that's a lot of uncleanness. That is why 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 states, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. This is not some kind of spiritual seed as some would suppose, for the Greek word is sperma, and whoever heard of spiritual sperm? And the way that his seed remaineth in him, is that he chooses a wife of his own kind. Was not Eve made from Adam? Didn't Adam's seed remain in him when Abel and Seth were conceived? It's when a man goes into a foreign woman that his seed remains not in him and he commits sin. Or likewise, when he goes into an alien woman is when he sins. That's why the Bible defines such an offspring as a bastard. And because it is an alien element, it's unclean. And no amount of washing can make it clean. It's acathartus and not coinus. It's acathartus according to the law. And not coinus. Jeremiah's language, continuing with Clifton makes that quite clear in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Yet I had planted thee, meaning Judah, a noble, or unmixed, Clifton interjects, a noble vine, holy a right seed, and Clifton interjects the word racial, holy a right racial seed, because this is speaking of people of a particular race. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant? And Clifton interjects the words race mixed. And the context of the entire chapter of Jeremiah demonstrates that that is what is being referred to. Then how art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, strong lie, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before thee, saith Yahweh. In other words, 
Clifton says, one could buy 40 gallons of strong lye soap and shower for 40 days and 40 nights, and one could not wash away the mark of an alien. Such a mark is a mark of uncleanness. Oh, the money that is wasted on foreign missions. And that mark surely is the mark of the beast. This is a good proof text in our assertion that something which is acathartus can be something which is unclean by reason of its nature and cannot be cleansed as opposed to someone who is coyness or something which is coyness, something which is ceremonial, ceremonially unclean because of its circumstances. So it is common, although it can be cleansed. Now Clifton cites Ezra, where Ezra, at chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, had lamented, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land unto which you go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to the other with their uncleanness. This is a similar description of America today. This is Clifton's response to this passage of Ezra. This is a similar description of America today with all of the unclean sewer people pouring in from distant lands all over the world to become bloodsuckers and leeches on our economy, while at the same time defiling our women to annihilate us as a pure race. The introduction of the Mexican sewer people alone has led to a major catastrophe. And if you're not believing that they are sewer people, go take a long, hard look at East L.A. or at anywhere, any place where there's a large concentration of Mexicans. At this verse, Ezra was addressing white people, advising them of the evils of a race, very much like today's Mexicans. At Job chapter 14, verse 4, we read of his wisdom. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Not even God would clean a pig, although it cannot be argued that he could turn it into something different. Christ declared to the scribes and Pharisees that they were an unclean racial people at Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all racial uncleanness. In other words, they were twice dead, as Jude described them in his epistle. They did not have the spirit which Yahweh had imparted to the Adamic man broken cisterns, which can hold no water, which we also read in Jeremiah chapter 2. Clifton continues, at 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Actually, he's citing 12 through 16 here. We come across another manner of uncleanness, and that would be clean or unclean children. If any brother has a wife that believes not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And a woman which has an un, a husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, and there the word is akathartis. But now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how thou knowest, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Speaking of temporal salvation. Here to use by Paul of the word akathartis to describe children which are ceremonially unclean, may seem to betray the distinction we have elucidated with the word coyness, but it does not. Contrasted with coyness, the word akathartis must designate something which is rendered unclean by the law, as opposed to something which may be cleansed, which is merely coyness, when the two words are used together or in the same context. But while by itself, akathartis may be used to describe something which is only ceremonially unclean and which may be cleansed, coyness does not describe something which cannot be cleansed at all. Coyness does not describe something which is unclean according to the law and cannot be cleansed. Swine are not merely coyness because Yahweh will not accept them to be sanctified and because they are Akathartis, by their very nature, they cannot be accepted. So there is a distinction between the two words. Returning to Clifton once again, <clears throat> Paul is here addressing something which is little understood and seldom addressed by churchianity today. This passage is indicative of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because Eve was genetically of Adam, Eve, though she sinned, was sanctified in Adam, just as the wife or husband in this passage. Take away the equation of race here, and Paul's words mean nothing. This whole passage is based on believing the gospel that Christ died on the cross in order to redeem his former wife, the twelve tribes of Israel, back to himself. And I do not quite agree with Clifton's analogy here, at least in the manner in which he had expressed it. Eve was not sanctified in Adam, but rather Adam was defiled by accepting Eve in her sin, and neither would be sanctified until they could be sanctified by Christ. For the children, Paul mentions to be sanctified at all. They would have to be, they would have to follow the believing spouse and be children of Israel in the first place. Continuing in reference to Adam and Eve, Clifton now rather appropriately says the gospel has nothing to do with what some term as the original sin. 
There are some teachers who, on reading, on every reading of the word sin, will replace it with the words old Adam, which isn't true at all because men still sin. But at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul declares that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. But we are told that Adam also ate of the forbidden tree. Think of it this way. If your wife takes out the family automobile and has an accident causing several thousand dollars of damage, when a claim is made for damages, you, the husband, will find yourself equally liable along with your wife. In other words, when Eve committed adultery with the serpent, Adam was equally responsible for Eve's action. Now that was the original sin. So why don't the preachers say old Eve rather than old Adam? The children in this passage are not racially unclean, meaning 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But without at least one believing parent, they are doomed to grow up in an unclean, idolatrous environment. And with that, I would agree that that was what Paul was referring to. And become mentally unclean. And it is simply appalling, the mental uncleanness that our children are receiving today from our public school systems. I would say they would, would be unclean because they would not have accepted the gospel. So they did not, they would not bear that cleansing of Christ. Not until they do. Uncleanness, Clifton says, always generates more uncleanness. Homosexuality generates more homosexuality among both men and women. Today, our armed services are replete with such unclean activity. In the high schools, tremendous peer pressure is directed toward any young white virgin lady to have sexual intercourse with a member of a different race. And should she have a date with a young Caucasian man, she will be scorned and ridiculed to no end. Therefore, race mixing generates more race mixing. When we view what is going on in the world today, Sodom and Gomorrah would be com would compare to a Sunday school picnic. Now Clifton cites Peter from the King James Version. But I will take the liberty of replacing his citation with the version from the Christogenian New Testament. Peter said at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, And he did not spare of the old society, but he had kept Noah, the eighth proclaimer of righteousness, having brought a deluge upon the society of the impious. And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah burning to ashes, he had condemned to destruction, having been set forth for an example of those who are going to be impious. For those in the future who would be impious, purposely impious, they have Sodom and Gomorrah as their example. And if that is not enough warning for them, then they will burn in ashes likewise. So Clifton responds and says, <clears throat> we're not playing a game of tinker toys here. Race mixing and homosexuality will be punished, the fiery trials of this world. According to the Apostle Jude, the sin of Sodom also included race mixing fornication, 
where he wrote in his epistle that even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. From the incident with Lot, where the men of Sodom sought to know the angels carnally, we can determine that they were, they were Sodomites as well as fornicators. Now Clifton continues in reference to race mixing. For there are, few there are, who notice that the reason Noah and his three sons and their wives were spared is because they were perfect in their genealogy, perfect in their descent. There wasn't a half-breed among them. Paul warned at Acts chapter 15 verse 20 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 that we should avoid all pollutions of idols and unclean fornication, interracial sexual intercourse. First Clifton cites Acts chapter 15 verse 20, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. But actually... It was James and the other elders of Jerusalem who had uttered those words. However, while Paul was present, the content that those words were uttered while Paul was present. Let me specify that. The content of his later epistles proves that he was in full agreement. So now Clifton cites Paul, and it is Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Paul, in one other place, and, and there's actually more than one other place, but in one other place he spoke of fornication, where it is clearly race mixing, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul referred to, he told the Corinthians, do not commit fornication as they, meaning their ancestors who who were with Moses in the Exodus, as they committed fornication, and in one day, 23,000 fell. Well, In the book of Numbers, it's 24,000, but it's clearly referring to the episode where the children of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab and committed fornication with them. And for that reason, there was a plague upon Israel until Phinehas stilled the plague by slaying with one thrust of the spear a man of the tribe of Simeon who was committing that same fornication in his tent with a Midianite woman. Midianites having been, a certain number of the Midianites having been among the Moabites at that time. Responding to the passage at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Clifton says, Among the holiness movements, they usually refer to sanctification as a second work of grace. 
But I believe it is so important to guard one's racial purity that it should, that it should be considered a first work of grace. What Paul was trying to warn the Thessalonians about was, so your offspring will be born holy, don't perpetrate any race mixing. Today we see a lot of unclean, unholy children coming into the world, and they are nothing more than sewer creatures. One either has holy seed or nothing. Ezra speaks of holy seed, chapter 9, verse 2. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yeah, the hands of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. Holy, clean seed was important to Ezra during his day, and it is still just as important in our day. Though the majority seem to be following Satan's agenda for interracial multiculturalism, there is an even greater need for followers of Yahweh's program for racial segregation. At the moment, Satan seems to be winning his cause. But in the end, he and his fallen will lose. But meanwhile, we must not give up the fight. This war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman has been going on now for nearly 7,500 years and will soon end with the defeat of Satanic Canaanites and their father. The Edomites being... The Jews being Edomites are also Canaanites on their mother's side. Christ informed the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, in verse 32, that they were of the unclean racially. They were of the unclean racially mixed Canaanites mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Compare. Fill ye up thou the measure of your fathers, too, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. These two verses cross-reference each other in many Bibles. In addition, Paul also identifies them as Canaanites. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, to fill up their sins always. And the pattern is there. It may not be an analogy I would make, but the pattern is there, and it is not unfair to make. It certainly is fair. This concludes our presentation of Clifton's paper. But I have a few closing remarks. There is one thing I did not mention in my discussion, in my earlier discussion of the COVID vaccine in relation to the market of beast. And that is the fact that many new vaccines, including this vaccine, contain contain something which is called recombinant DNA, which is DNA that evidently has the ability to recombine with other cells and change the nature of those cells. While I do believe this needs to be studied further, in order to truly understand the consequences. This is relatively new and unproven technology, and it may take many years to discover the consequences. If man becomes part beast, then he is actually fornicating his own living body. He is self-fornicating his own living body.
<coughs> excuse me, his own living body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote that in this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And that passage, that clause right there is severely mistranslated in the King James Version. So while we should believe that the eternal spirit existing within the Adamic man is a part of his intrinsic nature from the time of his birth, and as Christ himself had said, the enemy cannot harm the spirit. If a man or woman fornicates his own body, then he is risking the nature of his own children, as they may be born bastards, even if they are of two white parents. So perhaps, in that manner, these newfangled vaccines are just as bad as race-mixing fornication in that they destroy the seed of descendants forever. A bastard of any sort shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Not for ten generations, and in effect, not for ten million generations. Because after ten million generations, a bastard is still a bastard. There is no worse a market a beast than to marry and to give birth to beasts. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.